Okay. This is a Sound Health Options show with Richard Talk to Me Guy and Sherry Edwards. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning, Richard. We have such an exciting show with one of our very favorite people uh, today. Gwen Olson is going to be back with us. And I would like to read something real quick to give people an idea of what's going to happen. This is from the film Doctor that she was in. Children are the largest expansion market available to the pharmaceutical industry, R none. They become an add-on business technique to sell more drugs and to have lifelong customer bases. All kids have health insurance. They're either covered by private insurance or by Medicare, so therefore you have a guaranteed reimbursement in terms of insurance and you have a refill, a guaranteed refill customer because the doctors are going to encourage their patients to fill their prescriptions. The parents make them fill their prescriptions, so this is a marketing ploy to get our children on drugs because they have recognized that not only are all of them covered by insurance, but they are lifelong customers if they can get them on drugs at an early age. Gwen is a whistleblower, and she's going to talk to us about this and about things that are going on in the world right now that we really could do something about, but because of pharmaceutical pressure, nothing is being done. I am excited about having her on the show. Richard is over there trying to uh, get her online. Gwen has had to go into hiding from the pharmaceutical companies. She was a rep, a very good one, six-figure salary, and they decided to put her in charge of some training and brought her in and said to her, you have to make these people get doctors to get their patients on medication the first day of life, vaccines, by the way, um, so that we can have a customer from then on. That's just absolutely sick, despicable, incredible that this is a plan of the pharmaceutical companies. And I think it has absolutely backfired. There are, I've got a thing the other day, millions of children, millions before school age are on medication for some kind of psychological or emotional uh stress, or even maybe something somebody made up. Um, I don't remember this being any kind of a problem before well, when I was in school, but that was a long, long time ago. But we didn't even have uh, street drug problems then. So Gwen's going to fill us in on everything new. I've looked at her website. She has um, filmed a show with Dr. Oz. don't know when that's going to show. She's been all over the country. She is getting so popular that people from all over the world are inviting her to be part of spilling the beans about what Big Pharma is doing, where um, money is coming first. And I just got another thing, too, that shows you how powerful money is. There's something called... The International Society of, I can't even remember, I-S-S-E-E-M. And they used to be out of Colorado. I think they're out of California now uh, when some of the head honcho, uh, head honchos died. But they sent me a thing, um, an announcement that said, if you'll sign up for our conference... We will allow you to turn in paperwork and to be a possible speaker. 
Oh, that's pretty sick, too. If you come to our conference and pay to come there, we may entertain the idea that you can speak. Now, think about how money grubby that is. And I wrote back to them and said, this is pretty money grubby. Why are you doing it this way? And they said, well, people have to come to our conference. People who come to our conference, even those who speak, must pay to get there. Boy, if you have something good to say and wonderful to say, why should you have to pay a group to have you on when they are charging people to hear you speak? Wow. So even even our own people are beginning to look at money first. I think that's kind of incredible. We have an exciting deal coming up. We just did a two-day course about fibromyalgia, and a lot of people have it. It's just even when you get up um, from sitting in a chair, that's partially fibromyalgia and how your muscles deal with um, lactic acid and oxygen. We just did a two-day course, which, by the way, you can get online and in tutorials. So you don't have to repeat it. But we have a five-day fibromyalgia course coming up, and we have received money to provide 10 half-price attendees. So we've got, I think, four already filled. But think about that. You get your equipment, you get your five-day course, you get all your software, and somebody's paying the other half for you. So if any of you are interested, please call our office, 740-698-9119, or go to our site, soundhealthoptions.com, and sign up for the five-day course at half price. Thank you very much. The person doesn't want to be identified who provided the funds for that. But thank you, thank you very much. They are totally into getting rid of Big Pharma and putting health back into the hands of the people. I'm excited about that. Uh, Richard, you've been very quiet. Do you have any um, announcements? I have a couple announcements. I'll, I'll, tie, I'll definitely tie these two together. Um, I think we'll start out with the bad news, and then I'll go with good news. Same category. This is from the Center for Biological Diversity, talking about, this is a bit of PR, but it's really just about what's happening with monarch butterflies. The analysis is that 60 million acres of monarch habitat to be doused with toxic weed killer. Okay, that's one thing. The bad part is, I mean, the really bad part is, that despite steep monarch declines, this massive amount of dicamba, which is prone toward drift, will be used in the heart of the migratory path. Now, in the past 20 years, the monarch population, monarch butterfly population, has fallen by 80%. 80%. Imagine how many. That's a lot. Whoops. Uh, that was and, just okay. trying to get a video and, of Gwen. Okay. Uh, and so there, you know, this, I'll put this article in chat. Really what it's doing is that this dicamba, which is bad unto itself, it is inclined toward drift, meaning that it'll float over on other crops. And what it's going to do is it's going to kill milkweed for reasons I'm not clear about. And milkweed is the particular plant that the monarch caterpillar likes to really grows on and then turns into a butterfly. Now, glyphosate is a whole separate issue. We'll just step aside of that. So that's the bad news. It's still bad news. The the flip side is that there is currently a group called the Monarch Butterfly Habitat Exchange that is starting a <laughs> the title of the article is Groundbreaking Groundbreaking Airbnb for Butterflies now open for business. So what this group is doing is that they're try- they're working on making it so that private lands can be developed in the sense of getting more milkweed growing on those areas 
so that the remaining, you know, 10% of monarch butterflies that are still traveling the planet. Mind you, the monarch butterflies travel down to, I think, somewhere in South America. I mean, their migration is amazing. People just don't think of butterflies doing that. We think of birds, we think of many creatures, but monarch butterflies have been doing this for decades, hundreds of years. So what this group is doing is attempting to prevent this deadline decision about the monarch butterfly being put put already on the Endangered Species Act list. So what they're attempting to do is get open agricultural lands to develop them with plants and life that the monarch butterfly can then thrive on um, while they battle with this ridiculous dicamba, which is a toxic weed killer to begin with. So I just thought that was rather clever that somebody's coming up with Airbnb for monarch butterflies. Wow. I am writing. We're having trouble getting in touch with Gwen, so I'm writing to her now if you're hearing keys going on in the background. I'll add, while you're doing that, I'll add a comment about what you were talking about earlier is when having done, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago, I had a partner, and we traveled around and did whole life expos. That's actually where Sherry and I originally met. We just both don't remember it. But I do remember having some sound work done once a long time ago with a woman at a, you know, CRT monitor and tones. Somewhere there's a cassette tape, but I don't know where that is. And when we did these shows, you you would pay to have a booth to sell your products. But all the speakers that spoke at the show were free, and they weren't paid to be there, and they didn't pay to be there. They got on a list, and you got to hear everybody from, oh, man, I don't know, Andrew Weil to David Wolf before he was David Wolf, the amazingly barcoded person. Uh, And they were there speaking of their own choice. There was a list, and the people putting on the shows chose the people that had the biggest audiences. But there was no graft, excuse me, money involved. They weren't paid to be there, and they didn't pay to be there. So this whole idea of having a show where you have to pay to be there seems very tricky to me. Because how is it not, you know, does that mean the person with the most money gets in, no matter what they're selling? So if the NRA wants to do a lecture, these people will take their money and go, yes, we have your money, you can speak now. It blows my mind. I was trying to find out, I was trying to think of the International Society of Energy Medicine. Um, Boy, I'm looking online, I just cannot find what it really stands for. But that's awful. I know that sometimes we may be we may be having a hard time getting uh, Gwen because she's currently in Costa Rica, and I talked to her at the end of the week, and she says sometimes when it storms the lines go down, and they may be why we're getting no response. I'll try again. I'll step backstage. You riff for a moment, if you would, please. Um, I just got an email from her, and she said she's. Try to pick up, and the phone is not working. So uh, let's go ahead and play one of the films that she gave us about the things that she wants to talk about, and we'll see if she can come in and we'll stop the film. This is a little over an hour. So is that okay with you, Richard? Richard, are you there? I met Gwen when she was undoctored and got with Jeff Hayes and got in touch with her. And she was has been on the show several times. But she has a new um, issue. It's an old issue, but not the original one she came on about. It's about 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz, who is going to go down in history as the heinous young man who slaughtered 17 of his former classmates at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And she had an answer then, and nobody would listen. But since all of these high school events have been going on, she's getting more and more attention about what is happening. So I'm going to, until we can find her and get her, well, we found her. Her phone just is not working. Uh, She's (laughs) Skyping me. 
Um, so we'll go ahead and play this so you can get a gist of what's going on. The Real Truth About Health, Gwen Olson, Industry's Influence in Medicine. Albert Einstein once said, the world is a dangerous place, not because of those who do evil, but because of those who look on and do nothing. I think that that statement couldn't be more applicable at any other time in history than it is in the world that we live in today. Our planet is in crisis. The human race is in crisis. We are being assaulted and poisoned on a daily basis covertly by the foods that we eat, by the water that we drink, by the drugs that we're taking, by the electronics that we use, and even the very air that we breathe is toxic to us. And the powers that be, and that includes the corporate advertisers, would have us believe that we're completely powerless to do anything about it because we're not intelligent enough to think for ourselves. We need somebody else to tell us what's right and what's wrong. We need someone else to tell us how to raise our children, how to conduct our families, how to live in this world. And as a consequence, we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people that are dying on a daily basis because we have not only been lied to, we've been dumbed down, and we've been doped up by a system that was designed intentionally to control us. And as a consequence of trying to control us, they're killing us. So that's why I have entitled my lecture today, Industry's Influence in Medicine, Duped, Doped, and Dying in America. Now, the social programmers have gotten us very well uh, acclimated to the problem, reaction, solution. So that's the way that I'm going to present my information today because that's the way that we've been programmed. I'm going to talk about the problem initially, then I'm going to show you the reactions to the problem, and at the end, fortunately, we're going to talk about solutions, okay? So first, let's talk about the amount of money that's involved and what the drug problem is in the United States of America. In 2013, U.S. sales of pharmaceuticals totaled $329.2 billion. In 2014, U.S. sales were $374 billion. Now, the interesting thing about that is there was a record 4.3 billion prescription drugs or prescriptions filled in the year 2014, even in light of the economy that we have currently where, you know, so many people are out of work, they don't have the resources, but yet we're still seeing a 13% increase in drug spending. Now, what do you think attributed to that? Of course, Obamacare was instituted. And so what we see here is that prescriptions that were covered by Medicaid rose 17%. And that accounted for like 70% of the growth in prescriptions in 2014. Another thing that kept the money coming in was the premium pricing that's practiced by pharmaceutical companies. And I've listed an example here of a drug that sold for hepatitis C called Solvaldi by Gilead Sciences that cost $1,000 a pill or $48,000 a treatment. And, of course, we have America's propaganda war on drugs. That's been going on since the 1970s. And we really are going to see from my presentation that this is propaganda, okay, and that we have all of these people that are talking about, you know, the drug problem with heroin addicts and cocaine addicts and marijuana use, where if you look at the, the new profile for a heroin addict, it used to be, a male who was 16 years old, disadvantaged, or the artist type of, you know, singer, artist type person, that they were using heroin as their drug of choice. That was the profile of, of the heroin addict historically. Now, the new heroin drug addiction profile is male or female, 23 years of age, from affluent households and neighborhoods, 
Also, they did not have heroin as their initial drug of choice, but once they were cut off from their opioid painkillers, then they had to go out and source a cheaper drug on the streets, and that's how they end up being addicted to heroin. We still have marijuana classified as a no medicinal value class one narcotic. And it, even though that it's been legalized as a medicinal um, product in many of the states here, it's still outlawed federally. And of course, we have our own CIA that is watching and lording over the Afghanistan poppy fields. And so the production has done nothing but increase under the uh, influence and the management of the U.S. corporation. Still, they're trying to outlaw homeopathy. They're trying to outlaw certain nutritional supplements. And I know I'm sure that several of you have probably read about where they go in and they do SWAT raids on people who are trying to sell raw milk. Even Amish farmers cannot sell raw milk. And, of course, our kids are the ones, they know that we're hypocrites, guys. They know that they're watching us every day pop pills, and they know that all of their friends at school are the most popular drugs of abuse these days are psychiatric drugs and painkillers. It's not the illicit drugs that we have the biggest problems with in our schools and on our college campuses. It's the actual prescription drugs. And the interesting thing about the marijuana, I've never I've always, you know, tried to stay away from this particular argument and stay focused on my, you know, psychiatric drugs and the things my experience as a pharmaceutical rep. But in my research, I came across the marijuana patent holder, patent number 6,630,507, cannabinoids as antioxidants and neuroprotectants. The holder of the patent is the U.S. government as represented by the Department of Health and Human Services, which is a cabinet post under the president. So that's a little bit of information that might interest you. And this I would like to read you directly quoted from the patent. Cannabinoids have been found to have antioxidant properties unrelated to NMDA receptor antagonism. This newfound property makes cannabinoids useful in the treatment and prophylaxis of a wide variety of oxidation-associated diseases, such as ischemic, age-related, inflammatory, and autoimmune diseases. The cannabinoids are found to have particular application as neuroprotectants, for example, limiting neurological damage following ischemic insults, such as a stroke and trauma, or in the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. Parkinson's disease, and HIV dementia. Non-psychoactive cannabinoids, such as cannabidoil, are particularly advantageous to, to use because they avoid toxicity that is encountered with psychoactive cannabinoids at high doses. So the next time that you get into that argument or someone gives you that argument, you know exactly where to go to show them that there is medicinal properties to marijuana. So there is definitely a political agenda, and the pharmaceutical industry is keeping this suppressed because they don't want you to be able to, to grow medicine in your backyard because you're cutting directly into their profit base. So who is the real problem and who is the perpetrator of the real drug problem in the U.S.? Of course, it's big pharma, right? And let's look at what the U.S. painkiller drug epidemic amounts to. In 1991, there were 76 million opioid prescriptions. Opioids are those drugs like hydrocodone, oxycodone, oxycontin. They're all the, the class two painkillers. In 2013, there were over 207 million opioid prescriptions. The U.S. consumes 100% of the hydrocodone. And if you don't know what the base plant is for that, it's poppy. So remember I mentioned that in Afghanistan, poppy production had increased, and, you know, we're watching over the poppy fields after we entered Afghanistan and started the conflict there. Also, U.S. consumes 81% of oxycodone. So we are the largest consumer of the opioid drug family. There are over 12 million Americans that are on painkillers without a prescription. 
So this is a huge category of drug of abuse. Now we can directly relate that to drug overdose deaths in the U.S. because drug overdose is the number one cause of accidental death. That's more than all the, the car accidents, the planes, the trains, whatever, kind of you know falling off the curb and getting hit by a bus or whatever. All of those combined together don't equal the amount of drug overdoses and the deaths related to those. In 2013, there were over 43,982 drug overdose deaths. 51.8% of those, or 22,767 of those, were from pharmaceutical drugs. Now, when we talk about mental health drugs in overdose, we see that drugs for mental health conditions were involved in a significant number of pharmaceutical overdose deaths. The category of benzodiazepines, and benzodiazepines are your anti-anxiety, anxiolytic drugs such as Xanax, Valium. Those were involved in nearly 30%. 6,497 of these deaths. Antidepressants were involved in 18%, 3,889. And lastly, antipsychotic drugs were 6% of overdose deaths, 1,351 people. So what are the contributing factors to this problem of Rx abuse? Well, first of all, it's the number of prescriptions that have been written and dispensed. And, of course, as you saw in one of the previous slides, since Obamacare has been instituted, we have a larger number of Medicaid-covered prescriptions, and so you're going to see a larger number of prescriptions written overall because if there's a patient that has insurance or some way to pay for it, they're going to get a prescription for one of these drugs. Also, there's been greater social acceptability. It's no longer taboo to drug your children. It's no longer taboo to take painkillers or to to be taking an anti-anxiety or an antidepressant agent. People are taking them and they're happy to talk about it and tell you that they're on them. There's no problem. Oh, and some of them will even sing their praises to the hilt that they've saved their lives, that they've solved their issues. There's also been a very aggressive marketing campaign by the pharmaceutical industry. And I'm sure that any of you know that you can't turn on your television anytime during prime time or look at a magazine that you don't see. Every other page there's a glossy ad for some pharmaceutical or every, you know, commercial or every other commercial you see someone running through the fields and, you know, playing with their dog and telling you to ask your doctor about this or that, right? So this has created a very broad environmental availability for the drugs because you can go to any household, you can find these drugs in people's medicine cabinets, their grandparents are taking them, their parents are taking them, a child gets a sports injury in school, they go in and they get you know, a prescription for one of these painkillers. If there's someone that is experiencing a death or some kind of, of uh, uh, transition, then they're also going to be prescribed maybe one of the psychiatric drugs, maybe an antidepressant, maybe an anxiolytic, but it's become very broadly accepted and therefore there's a lot of availability for people. Now, I entitled this No Free Lunch in Sales because you would be amazed at how many doctors think that they're getting a free lunch from the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, there are so many offices. When I lived in Austin, Texas, I felt like literally a caterer because I couldn't get in to see a doctor hardly unless I agreed to feed him and his staff. Sometimes that would cost me up to upwards of $200, $300 in order to be able to spend two or three minutes with a physician, and that was if they showed up. I even one time saw an ad in a local paper where they were advertising for someone to work the front desk in a doctor's office, listing pharmaceutical reps provide lunch every day as one of the benefits. So that's exactly what they're doing in order to get pharmaceutical reps, you know, to have airtime with the physician. You have to pay for it. You have to provide something for them. But a lot of them feel like pharmaceutical reps don't influence their prescribing habits. It's just one of the courtesies of having, you know, the rep in to educate them. And that is not the truth, and there could be nothing further from the truth. In fact, statistics show that drugs that were introduced after 1997 that gained revenues of over $200 200 a year, 
that the average return that was received for each dollar that was spent on a detail rep, that's what they call pharmaceutical, or pharmaceutical reps, is detail reps, Hello? was $10.29. Oh, that's huge, people. Oh, look my at, gosh. Look at it in comparison. Finally. Nearly two times the return that they make on investment. We are live on air. Uh, Richard and Gwen has just called in on Skype. Hello, Gwen. Hello, Sherry. So sorry, I don't know what's going on, but I can't seem to get I, the phone is ringing, but I'm not able to answer. <laughs> well, we are playing your industry's influence in medicine, duped, doped, and dying. We can reschedule you. We can go on with the video, or if you want to join the show now, that would be great. Well, it's entirely up to you. I'm, I'm, I was prepared to be here today, but if you want to go ahead and show the film, I'd be happy to reschedule and just make sure we have everything. I have no idea what's happened, and I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, but that's one of the reasons I stopped doing interviews, because this seems to happen frequently to me. One thing or another prevents me from being able to talk about the things I want to talk about in live interviews. Well, we can give people the link for the video we started and just go ahead and start with you now. We have already introduced you. We have read your part from uh, doctored about how pharmaceutical uh, people tried to get you to get infants on medicine the first day of. So we're kind of at big, farm, big money return on investment. Okay. So do you want to start there? And we'd like you to talk to... Um, how you got interested in this. Richard, do you have a first question you want to start with? <laughs> I have a, I have a, uh, I guess I'll start with this as a, since we're here, I'll start with this as an opening question. When did it become popular or start trending to prescribe psychiatric disorder drugs to kids? It wasn't really, it didn't, it didn't seem to, from the history I know and from reading your book and from reading the article, it didn't seem like it was a thing, and then all of a sudden it like popped in a certain way. What was the? Was there a tipping point? Was there a thing? Was it just the marketing department? Uh, what do you think? Well, well, actually, I think that it was after the SSRIs were released and Prozac came out. It it became a very popular thing to start. Um, giving people with just mild to moderate depression antidepressants. And as more and more SSRIs came onto the market, the manufacturers were looking for expansion markets. And that's one of the things that distressed me so much is that every manufacturer that I worked for had identified that their largest expansion markets were the children because children, you know, hadn't, hadn't typically been put on these types of, of um, medications in the past. And so, therefore, if they could get a child on these drugs, they pretty much had a lifelong customer. Because what was found was the, the antidepressants don't really resolve depression. Um, in fact, they kind of create a chronicity in depression where that it used to be on the older tricyclic antidepressants, people would tend to have, you know, a, a, a period where that they would go into remission and then they would get better sometimes after they were on the drugs. But once the SSRIs became very popular, and SSRIs, if, if you don't know, that's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Um, those are the drugs like Prozac, Zoloft, um, uh, Luvox, those different types of, of um, SSRIs. And those started creating a chronicity where that people didn't really get well. They started, they started relapsing more. So I think that that was one of the areas that kind of pushed um, the market into the children because, you know, they're always looking for larger patient populations, particularly as more competitors come onto the market because that means that they have, you know, a, a smaller piece of the pie. And... When you're looking at a diagnosis, I don't mean your, but I mean in a sense of with psychiatric medicine, air quotes around medicine, I'm not anti-psychiatric, I'm just suspicious. Um, how do you, when you're, <laughs> when you're dealing with diagnoses that are like contact disorder, 
or severe irritability, which I have. I think I need some medication because I have extremely severe irritability. Um, how is this? There's no way. I mean, you sit with somebody in a room and they you talk to them and they figure that you have a disorder. But there's no blood check. There's no confirmation of any kind. It's an opinion. How does that work? Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's really what that's that's a big part of what my issue is with all of this is that they have medicalized normal behavior patterns. Uh, I mean, I worked as a court-appointed special advocate working with abused and neglected children in the foster system in Texas for several years, and I started noticing that, you know, two-year-olds and three-year-olds were being put on these drugs because of their behavioral problems. Well, I mean, historically, aren't the terrible twos called the terrible twos because that's generally when children start to try to, um, to you know, act out a little bit and exert their their autonomy and they want to be their own boss and, you know, that sort of thing. So I really started questioning why on earth they would give children drugs for that behavior. And then also things like children that didn't want to interact or play with other children. Because when I was growing up, that meant a child was shy. And that's what we were told. But now that has become a mental disorder. And so they have to, you know, take a a, a drug for that. It's just the medicalization of normal behaviors, in my opinion, especially where children are concerned. So, again, I think it's just another way for the manufacturers to expand their markets because the more diagnoses that they have, you know, if you get a mental illness diagnosis, then the treatment these days is some sort of uh, pharmaceutical intervention. It's not natural. Usually it's not therapy. In fact, less than 50% of the time, do children actually get something other than a phar- pharmacologic intervention? And I don't believe it always was. I, in the article, you talk about one in seven school-aged children is on one or multiple psychiatric drugs. When did that become That's a correct. thing? That's correct, and it wasn't that way before. In fact, one of the best ways to really actually see how this epidemic has kind of, you know, it's it's 35-fold increase, for example. In 1967, there were only 16,200 children that were on the disability, uh, the disability data list. So if you fast forward that to 2009, there were like over 600,000 children on disability. That's a 35-fold increase. Wow. And this is straight out of Robert Whitaker's book, uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic. And now they have like 100,000 new recipients annually in children. And there's an absolute new age category for disability, which is 18 to 26, that we didn't used to have. And that is strictly for bipolar and mood disorder diagnoses. So that really shows you how that they have utilized this area to medicate people, particularly children, who they don't have any scientific evidence. As you said, there's no CAT scan, there's no X-ray, there's no blood test, there's nothing that can prove this mental disability. It's just, you know, the observance of a third-party entity, and they, they, they label maladaptive behaviors as mental illness. And they don't give them therapy. Is that true? They're, so they're Very not even doing talk therapy? Less than 50% of the time, according to CDC, CDC statistics, 50, less than 50% of the children receive any kind of cognitive behavioral therapy or any kind of, of counseling or anything. They're usually just placed on, on pharmaceuticals. And I hate to be so extremely radical and suggest, do they ever look at diet? or environmental factors at all? Well, you know, you have to realize that doctors aren't trained in what's considered alternative um, treatments. And and diet and exercise and those sorts of things are considered alternative treatments. Most doctors are just giving, and and I'm not going to say all doctors because there are integrative care doctors, there are um, doctors of osteopathy, there are doctors that are starting to realize that they have to integrate some of these 
things into their practice in order to not lose patients. But for the most part, doctors aren't trained that way. They're not educated in medical school about diet, about exercise, about, about alternative treatments to things. So, no, very frequently they're not looking at the child's diet. Um, I mean, those of us who do look into alternative uh, methods of, of treatment would obviously know that exercise is a very effective way to combat depression and that dietary issues by eliminating, eliminating or minimizing sugars and, and grains and things in a child's diet, you can also help children with attention span and, and focus and uh, things that often get them labeled ADHD in school. So, I mean, there are lots of things to look at, alternatives, but you really can't get those things covered by insurance. So what most yeah. parents do is they go to their doctor, their local practice, uh, practitioner, and they get a medication, which is required many times even by the school if they've been diagnosed ADHD or if they have, you know, some kind of oppositional defiance um, label or something like that in order for them to even be able to attend school. Well, I partially ask uh, about the diet thing because it was back in the 90s, which is so much further than I think in my mind. Uh, back in the 90s, I interviewed Doris Rapp, who's a medical doctor, who wrote the book, Is This Your Child? And she had done documented studies where she, would, she was mostly observing environmental factors where she would film – that's how long ago this was – film a classroom of kids in a standard cleaned classroom and observed you know, acting outs and various things that would occur. And then a week later, she'd put the same group of kids in a classroom that had been cleaned with hypoallergenic products or even just water and vinegar and observed the differences. And she documented that and wrote this great tome of a book, 400-page book, a medical doctor, about mm -hmm. observing those effects. And here we are 20-odd years later, and still Western medicine doesn't seem to be very interested in that. I'm just more on a rant than I am looking for a question, because it is really shocking to me how it seems like the FDA is here to protect the pharmaceutical industry rather than us. Well, uh, you know, and, having worked in the industry and having seen how the FDA kind of transitioned out of being uh, the watchdog for the pharmaceutical industry into being their advocate um, and their protectorate, I, uh, I certainly agree with you. I think the Food and Drug Administration is, is really faulty in, in this regard because they are primarily because of funding. You have, to, you have to always follow the money trail if you really want to understand what the motivation for things are in this industry. And it's the same, there's no difference in, in the CDC or the FDA or any of those people who receive a large amount of funding from the pharmaceutical industry, then they become cohorts. They become collusive in their efforts with uh, the pharmaceutical industry because it's big money. We're talking about, you know, not chump change. It's, it's billions and trillions of dollars that we're talking about. So um, once I started really getting into that rabbit hole and seeing how much collusion and how much disinformation and, and protection was going on of the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I really felt like I had a moral obligation to speak out because I had been duped. I had been, you know, uh, programmed and, and indoctrinated to believing that what I was doing as a pharmaceutical rep was actually helping people when, in fact, I was on the front lines, I was harming people unintentionally, but I was responsible for having doctors make decisions about things that were harming his patients, and I was, you know, unaware of all of the information that I needed to know, primarily because it's a very compartmentalized business. It's a very compartmentalized um, industry. So you only know what you're supposed to know or what you need to know, and then you don't, you know, you're not given any other information. So once I started doing my own individual research and started, you know, looking at clinical studies after I'd been taught how to read clinical studies and noticing that, you know, there were clinical studies out there that we weren't publishing because if they didn't get the results that the pharmaceutical industry wanted or, or they wouldn't present them to the FDA, they would just, you know, kind of hide those studies and not talk about those studies and only present the studies that gave the information or the results that made the drugs look good. 
So it's it's just a very, very, um, again, I, I hate to use the word, but that's what it is. It's collusive. They collude with one another to make sure that the drugs are sold, the drugs are perceived as being efficacious when, in fact, very often they're not, and they minimize the dangers of the product. And that is not what the FDA is supposed to do. The FDA was designed to, you know, be a protectorate of the consumer, but that's not what they have become. They have, they have evolved into something else, a complete lapdog of the pharmaceutical industry. Is the present government making any changes in this respect? One can only hope. Um, you know, we've, we've heard lots of promises from the Trump uh, camp that they're going to do things about the pharmaceuticals. Primarily, I've heard about pricing, but I do also know that he's made some comments about vaccines and things of that nature. But I've yet to see anything actually come out of those promises. So I'm still hoping that perhaps there will be people like um, Robert Kennedy Jr., who is, is a big vaccine advocate, talking about the dangers of all of the various vaccines that, that we're giving our children, particularly at birth. And um, I do have hope that there's something that may come from that, but I'm kind of the wait-and-see person when it comes to politics. I, you know, politicians say a lot of things that they often don't follow through with. Well, you talked a lot about big pharma. Does any of this come out of big F-A-R-M-A, GMOs, and even vaccines? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of the thing. When I first started speaking out, I tried to specifically just stay in the area of psychiatric drugging, which was my expertise. It's what I'd written my book about. It's what I'd done all my research on. And I tried to, to avoid that, the vaccine issue, like, you know, wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole because that really was a sacred cow that people who even tried to look into it get attacked over, right? But once I'd been doing this for so long, and I'd been in the rabbit hole literally going through one burrow to the other, and everything kind of connects. It's like a, an octopus. You may not, they may look unrelated, but all of those arms are connected to one big body, right? You started to see that vaccines were often the um, first thing, the first pharmaceuticals that the child was exposed to that created the health issues or created the behavioral problems or the mental health issues that they were experiencing. And then after that, was when they started getting other pharmaceuticals like psychiatric drugs piled onto that. So sometimes it's, it's really important to go all the way back in a child's medical history to see when things started developing because it can very frequently, they can exacerbate, be exacerbated by their um, vaccine regimen. I want to jump sideways slightly for a moment and go back to who is, Fred Bauman Jr., and what did he have to say about some of the diagnoses? Well, Fred, Fred Bowman was, is a neurologist, and he's actually a, a pretty well-known neurologist in the field uh, because he has, he has uh, found true neurological diseases. But he specifically says that ADHD does not exist as a disease. It is not a disease state. These are just behaviors that are classified as a disease and that there is no medical evidence of ADHD. Again, it's just all um, observation and third-party uh, opinions about uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And so I'm not saying that the symptoms don't exist because that always puts parents and adults alike up in arms because they say, well, I have ADHD, I can't focus. Well, you can take um, a group of symptoms and create a label, and yes, you may have those symptoms, but you do not, in fact, have a disease that's provable by medical testing. And how and that's does... What, that's what ahead. Dr. Bowman And how does... What's the response in the healthcare side? In other words, how do doctors feel when they hear that information from somebody who has some respect in the world of research and is, as you said, has actually found real neurological disorders? So when he publishes that information, what happens? Does it just get squashed and ignored? 
basically, or demonized. It's, it's, you know, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, so I really try to pick my words and choose my words, but I, as the longer that I've done this and the more information that, you know, I have under my belt, I realize that there definitely is a medical mafia. And, and if you go outside of the dictates of the medical mafia and you are in that mafia, for example, Andrew Wakefield, who spoke out, and all he really was trying to tell people was that he had seen, uh, he was finding a causal effect with vaccines and the gut issues that, you know, that children that were coming into his practice were having. And he actually was demonized to, to the degree that he lost his medical license to practice. And you're not even allowed to question these things. And if you do question these things or the few doctors that have the chutzpah, so to speak, to come forward and to speak out and to try to, to make a change or try to bring awareness to these issues, they're basically criticized and, and, and shut up as much as, as they can possibly be shut up. Because, you know, like Dr. Andrew Wakefield, he's just continued to go forward and make films. I don't know if you've seen the film Backed or, you know, and, and to write papers and to do interviews. And that's basically the same thing that I have tried to do over the last 12 years. I mean, I've been censored. I've been, they've done all kinds of things. When I say they, I don't know exactly who they is. I just know that these kind of things happen to me all the time, particularly when I've been doing um like for today, I was doing a lot of research on all of the school shooters that had been affiliated with psychiatric drugging. And it's not just a few. It's just a, it's a common denominator. And so once you um, have advertised that you're going to be on a radio show or you're going to, to do a television show, in fact, I was on the Dr. Oz show twice. The first show that I was on, um, they kind of, you know, edited it what I said out uh, so that I only had like a minute or so. And the second time, that show actually where I was uh, on the show with the American Psychiatric Association president never aired. So it's just they silence the dissenters and the people who have any kind of credibility that can come forward and actually, you know, present evidence, can, can read clinical studies, can look at a clinical information and make determinations. And again, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not saying that, you know, I am an expert, but I definitely have done my homework and my due diligence, and I worked in the industry for 15 years. I knew how to, to learn uh, to read clinical studies. I knew how to, to look at information and, you know, critically intelligent, ask critically intelligent questions and make critically intelligent decisions about it. So it's just one of those things that when people come forward and, and they have something contrary to what the FDA or the CDC or the Pharmaceutical Association members have to say about something, they try to silence you. Well, can you wow. go ahead and can you go ahead and talk about some of the things you found out about these school shooters? I just think that's incredibly important. Well, it is, and that's one of the reasons I was really disappointed that I wasn't able to receive your call because I thought I wasn't going to be able to share this with your audience because I think it's very important um, that we talk about that we have a national discussion not only about gun safety because that seems to be highly politicized immediately after one of these events, um, and they also start talking about intervention for mental illness, but we all have to understand that when they're talking about intervention for mental illness, it doesn't mean that they're going to make sure, just like, you know, Richard stated, that we get, that these children get better diets, that they have better access to counseling, or that they have intervention in the home environment to find out whether they're being abused or, or what's going on with these kids. They're put on drugs. That's what mental health intervention is in our society in this day and age. So since those things are very, you know, obvious, we have to take a look at some of the other um, predisposition factors to these shooters. And so I've been looking at all morning long, just refreshing myself about the Columbine incident with like Eric Harris. He was on Lubox and his counterpart, Dylan Klebold, was said by several of his friends to have also been on antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents. But his medical records were sealed and we never got to find out whether or not he was actually on something. We never got to the clear-cut evidence of that. 
And then there was the Virginia Tech shooter. Um, I can't pronounce his first name, but his last name was Cho. And his roommate has re had reported that even that morning he had taken a psychiatric drug and he had been under psychiatric care and in the mental health um, mental health facility there on campus. So we don't know exactly what Cho was on because uh, coincidentally his records were lost and missing for well over four months after the incident. And so when that information finally came out that the records had proven that he had been under mental health care and, and that he was taking prescription drugs, it was kind of a footnote by then. We didn't really, you know, unless you're a researcher like I am that's constantly digging for that information, you know, that, that went unnoticed by the larger populations of people. And then, for example, the Sandy Hook shooting, Adam Lanza. He was reported to have been on anti-anxiety medication and antidepressants. And let me back up and just say the combination of drugs, having anti-anxiety agents and antidepressants is very, very common. Probably and primarily because the antidepressants cause a lot of people to experience anxiety states. So, you know, that's one of the major side effects of antidepressants. So very often doctors will just concomitantly prescribe anti-anxiety agents with an antidepressant. And then also there was then the Florida Douglas High School shooter that just, you know, just recently this event was Nicholas Cruz. His mother had said he had been diagnosed as being autistic and having ADHD. He was being treated for depression and for ADHD. So if he was being treated, we don't know now what drugs that he was on, and we may never find out. Um, they may never, ever disclose that information because he's not dead, so there's no autopsy, which sometimes that's how we learn about it is through the autopsy. They can actually say what kind of drugs were in the, in the shooter's body. But um, his mother said that, you know, he was being treated with something, so if he was being treated for ADHD, he was probably on amphetamine-like stimulant drugs, maybe Adderall, or, or, um, or um, he was on antidepressants as well because sometimes uh, they combine those drugs as well, the antidepressants, and, the, and they could have also had him on antipsychotic drugs because now antipsychotic drugs are being used in combination with antidepressants because antidepressants are not that effective. So they, when the antidepressant doesn't work, they add an antipsychotic, a newer antipsychotic onto those drugs as well. And the problem with that is many of these drugs have psychiatric side effect profiles. They're psychiatric drugs, and they're given to, um, you know, eliminate a certain psychiatric symptom. But, for example, antidepressants, they, they create agitation, they create irritability, hostility, aggressiveness, hallucinations, both auditory and visual, mania, impulsivity, delusions suicidal and homicidal ideation, sleeplessness, I can just go on and on and on. So if you have a child that has, has a behavioral problem or say they're in a, in a bad home or just like this last shooter, his mother had just died three and a half months prior to this event. And he was known to be, a, you know, a person that was quiet and well-behaved. I mean, if you listen to his, his um foster parents that were taking care of him after his mother died. They said, you know, they were totally shocked by this because he, he followed all the rules. He was a good kid. He went to school. But then you have the media portraying him as though he was some sort of demon. And he did have behavioral problems. But, you know, he was shooting an airsoft gun at, at frogs and lizards, and he was, you know, um, throwing eggs at somebody's house or car. He was doing mischievous things primarily when you start looking through the research, things that as when I was growing up, all boys were doing, quite frankly. So um, it's not really that he was someone who was like stealing or he was having criminal behaviors prior to this. So even his foster parents expressed, you know, they were just completely, they were just completely uh, taken aback that this had happened because they didn't expect anything like this out of this boy. But he was being treated. So I don't, I don't know if he had stopped taking his medication because there's a problem with these meds in that there's a large amount of risk when they first initiate therapy with these drugs. Then there's more risk if they change the dosage of the drug. And there's particularly high risk 
if the child or the, the person stops taking the drug, especially if they cold turkey off the drug and don't taper slowly and, you know, get the, the drug slowly out of their, their blood. So um, you really, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly what predisposed this young man to this um, mayhem that, and, you know, murder that he created, but there was definitely something that was probably an affiliation with a psychiatric drug. And we're not talking just about children. If you look at the mass shooters in general, I mean, I could just go and just click off a, a, a slew of them, like the four-foot shooter, Ivan Lopez. He was on Ambien and, and antidepressants. The Washington Navy shooter, Aaron Alexis, he was on Trazodone. The Aurora Theater shooter, James Holmes, he was on Zoloft and Klonopin. Uh, the Fort Lauderdale airport shooter recently, Esteban Santiago, his relatives said he was being treated for depression. And so, I mean, these, and even Stephen Paddock, the Las Vegas shooter, he was on Valium. So, I mean, you can just go on and on and on, and that, that is the footnote to the story that never gets put into the national spotlight, that I think it's time for us to really take a hard and close look at, because these people are doing things that are not their personalities. These are not the things that they, you know, that they have a history of this kind of violence or this kind of criminality. And just one day, for some reason, they're on psychiatric drugs and they become psychotic, which psychosis is a side effect of these drugs, and they commit these horrible crimes. So we need to take a look at whether, you know, if we're going to, improve the mental health care system in the United States, it has to have this aspect of this problem addressed because you don't want to put more vulnerable people on psychiatric drugs that are, A, not efficacious, and, B, have a huge problematic side effect profile that people are, you know, we might have dozens of these incidents per month instead of just one or two here every other month. But if you really look into it, a lot of these aren't even, you know, covered by the mainstream media. You have to really start doing some due diligence and research, and you'll be appalled when you find out how many of these shooters, they report hearing voices, and they were not psychotic or didn't have psychotic symptoms prior to this, but when they start taking psychi psychiatric drugs, they start having auditory hallucinations. And so just like this, this Florida shooter, Nicholas Cruz reported hearing demons in his head, telling him to create this mayhem, to go out and murder these classmates of his. So this could very well be a side effect of a psychiatric drug. I have two yeah. things to add, and then we are out of time. One, somebody just sent me an article that says four times more people are stabbed to death than killed by rifles. So we want to know more about that. We want to know more about the chapter in the book you wrote about this, um, we want to have you back next Sunday. We'll move whatever is there because I think it's really important that you talk about the solutions that you've come up with. Is that something you can do for next week, next Sunday? Absolutely, Absolutely. and I would love to do that. And I'm sorry, I feel a little bit rattled because of not being able to get through to you today, but I hope that your audience forgives me and that they'll tune in again um, next Sunday, and I would like to offer all of your listeners, if you would contact me at my website, gwenolson.com, I would like to offer a free ebook to everyone for their patience with me today and uh, a copy of Confessions of an Rx Drug Pusher if they would like to review it. And that's O-L-S-E-N. That's okay. correct. Okay. That's correct, Sherry. Uh, any last words? I know we've run over time, Richard, but this is such an important topic. Yeah, I really want to have you back for a full hour so we could that, – that's why I sort of when we jumped in the middle, I was asking you not about this part because I feel that, that what you're talking about now, we really need to spend an hour on and really develop out because it's so critical and it's, it seems to have reached critical mass in a certain way. So we really need to devote an hour to that. So I'm thrilled to hear that we'll, we'll be talking with you again next weekend. All right. Thank I'll you. find out in the meantime what's wrong with my phone. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the technology. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> I think it's important that our audience hear about solutions and things that they can do. Oh, absolutely. And there are solutions, and that's the reason why I'd love to come back and talk to you about them. 
Thank you, Gwen. Thank you, Gwen, You're so much. You're one of much. our favorite people. <laughs> yep. Thank you so much, and I hope everyone has a blessed and wonderful day. Thank you. All right, everybody, have a great rest of the weekend. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.